Okay, Ezra chapter 5, if you guys want to open up your Bibles there, that'd be great. Ezra chapter 5. Here's what I want to do, I want to read chapter 5 verse 1. It starts like this, and I'll explain what we're doing. Now the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, the son of Edo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God, in the name of the God of Israel, who is over them. I'm going to stop right there. Okay? One verse. That's all we're going to get to at this moment. But immediately starts out by saying there were these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, their job, they were called by God to go to the people of Israel, to communicate to them, to speak forth to them, as well as leadership, God by the name of Zerubbabel, he was sort of the leader, and the high priest, he was sort of the public official religious leader, and to communicate to these guys to keep going. And we're going to look at what Haggai says in just a moment here. We're going to use Haggai because the very first message that we did in this whole series, we looked at a lot of Zechariah, just snippets of it, but I want to really kind of focus on the message of Haggai in just a moment. Okay? Haggai was a messenger, he was a prophet. I don't know what you think about when you think of prophets. depends upon what type of religious background you came from. If you were from more of a radical, Pentecostal type, charismaniac type of a background, you might think someone standing up there shouting, yelling at you, saying all sorts of crazy things. The bottom line is, is we are a church that believes in Pentecostal gifts. We believe in prophecy. It's been my personal experience that a lot of times people that do prophesy are a few cards short of a full deck. But at the same time, it's a gift that God uses. Prophecy needs to be tested. And these were some guys that basically were used by God to speak forth His message, to communicate God's Word, to bring about encouragement. Okay, that being said, we'll get back to them in just a moment. Up until this point right now, here's what's happened in the history of the people of Israel. I'll point out for you a little bit of a timeline. You can see this in the next slide. Here's what happens. I'll give you some dates this time. Back in 536 B.C., before Christ, uh, 50,000 Jews of about approximately 2 million Jews, maybe between a million to 2 million Jews, who were taken away into captivity to the ancient empire of Babylon, uh, they were there for 70 years. After 70 years were fulfilled, around 50,000 of these Jews that were in captivity decided to make the long trek back to their homeland. Now, most of the people that were on this uh, journey never been to Israel. Never been to Israel. I mean, you can imagine, 70 years in exile. Uh, most of the people that were on this trip were young. They'd never seen Jerusalem. They don't have any pictures of Jerusalem. There's no way for us for them to even understand what Jerusalem or Israel was about other than stories that they had heard from their uh, parents or relatives or friends. A handful of the people that had come with them were older, and these were people that had been a part of the original exile. I mean, they were part of they were they lived in Jerusalem when the Babylonians came. These were old people, probably within their 80s. They still have some sort of memory of what uh, Jerusalem used to look like prior to it being destroyed. When the Babylonians came, they destroyed the city. They destroyed the temple. The civil, economic, uh, religious centers were completely destroyed. So this group of 50,000 people returned. They were refugees. There was nothing for them. There were no housing tracks waiting for them. Uh, There's nothing. It was literally like a bunch of people returning uh, back to their houses shortly after the destruction in New Orleans. There's nothing there for them. But they came back because they had a desire to rebuild the temple. They wanted to establish the church. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to see a strong church uh, dedicated to the worship of the one true living God reestablished. They were committed to this dream. In about 535, so a year later, we go down as you come towards Christ, obviously, 535 B.C., so a year later, an altar was rebuilt. They were offering sacrifices on this altar. And they had also laid the foundation stones of the temple itself. Somewhere around that time, shortly thereafter, 
uh, within you know, weeks or months, shortly after they laid the original foundation stones, what had happened was there was massive um, adversity. Chapter 4 is all about the adversity that, that, that came against them. There were people that were attacking them. There were rumors that were going around. Press clipping release, releases that were going on air. Uh, Oprah was talking bad stuff about them. Bloggers were coming out saying that the children of Israel are doing bad stuff. That they're setting up a kingdom that's going to run counter to the kingdom of Persia, which had now been the rulers at this particular time. And, uh, and what was happening, these rumors were spreading, and it was creating sort of this opposition. All right? There was also sort of internal conflict that was happening. There's corruption that was taking place. We looked at that the past two weeks, and we equated that to as God moves, when God moves, there will always be adversity. All right? We talked about this and how when you are trying to do something, let's say you're trying to get your life right with God. You notice it's not easy? It's not easy? All right? Anybody who says Christian life is easy is either lying or very ignorant. All right? Or not one of them. It's hard. It's not easy. When you start saying, I'm going to live for God, I'm going to live for righteousness, there's this big, massive bullseye that's placed upon you. All right? You've got crosshairs on you now. Satan and all of his people, demons, working for him, will seek to try to stand against you. It's called adversity. They'll try to destroy you. It's a suppression. God will try, God is for you. God is your strength. But the enemy is also an adversity that will push against the work that God is doing in your life to cause you to get discouraged so that you can pull out and the work would ultimately stop. The last verse of chapter 4 is it says the work stopped. It's exactly what the enemy wanted to have happen. It's exactly what the enemy wanted to have happen. So somewhere between chapter 4 and chapter 5 was a lapse of about 15 to 16 years. Okay? So you can note, in terms of a chronological standpoint, there's a gap between chapter 4 and chapter 5, about 16 years. And it's that gap period of time that we're sort of going to jump over and try to understand the best of our knowledge what was happening there and try to understand why everything changed at this time. Because chapter 5, verse 1 says, at this time God raised up two prophets to speak to communicate, to encourage, to crack a whip, to, to say, get on your gloves and let's start fighting again. To say, pick up your weapon, we've got to keep going. To keep them from buckling at the knees. Because that's what was happening. So at about August 29, 520 B.C., the work started. We know that. We've got dates. Um, years later, 515 B.C., five years later, the temple is completely finished. We're not going to get to that today, but we're just going to look at around August 29, 520 B.C. is where we're going to basically be picking up the story and seeing what's happening then. So, I want to try to wrap our minds around what exactly was happening that brought about the need for Haggai, this prophet, to communicate, which we'll look at in just a moment. What, was, what were the circumstances that led to the prophet Haggai rising up, communicating, exhorting, bringing challenges to the people of Israel. What, what, what had happened? I think there's at least uh, several things that were taking place, one of which was, again, you just got to picture this in your mind. Here are these people, were 50,000 of them. These are normal people, just like you and I, right? There's nothing super spectacular about them. Drove subcompact cars. They were just regular people, all right? Had regular blue-collar jobs, and, and yet they recognized that God is great. They wanted to do something great for God. The same way, that's, that's the way we are as a church. We just want to be a church that lives in such a way that communicates, not just verbally, how good God is, but we want to demonstrate it. We want God to be seen in the way that we live, in the way that we talk, and the way, give you, break this down even further for you, we want, to, we want God to be seen as great, even by very practical means, as the gospel works itself out, very practical, practically is an example of being like a dad. A dad who just loves his kids. A dad who loves his wife. Or, 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 or a mom who is passionate about serving her children, and being a good wife, 
taking care of the needs that are maybe they're at home or she's working to be a good work or a business owner if you own a business or you're a worker to work in such a way that we show honor to the people that God places us in I mean the gospel works itself out in all of these ways and this is why Paul the apostle would say things like this your citizen pay your taxes be a good citizen why because by living in certain ways we demonstrate how great God is. It's, it's, a, it's a model. And so the point is, is that for us as example as a church, as we go forth and try to demonstrate how good God is by our lifestyle, by being a church that is effective in San Luis and beyond, we'll hit opposition. There'll be adversity. But the question is, what do we do when we hit adversity? What do we do when we strike opposition? Okay, I want, to, I want to practically try to think through this. Here they are, 50,000 Jews. They move to Israel, right? Again, no housing tracks, no places to rent. They've got to make life start from scratch, which means build houses with what you've got. What's the number one building supply in Israel? Rocks. There's a lot of rocks in Israel, alright? It's just, there's a lot of rocks there. Everywhere you look, there's rocks. So they're building houses, stacking rocks on top of each other, and, you know, they're cutting down whatever they can and stacking them up and building tents, and maybe if there's cows, you know, they got people who slaughter cows and take the leather and make big tents. It, that's what they're living in, okay? It's not ideal, but it's working, alright? They're there on a mission. So within seven months of moving there, they lay the groundwork, the foundation stones for the temple, they build the altar, things seem to be moving forward, they hit this opposition. And here's another thing to think about, okay? They've got the elements to fight against too, right? Jerusalem does actually get snow. So imagine this. Here you are, father of eight, right? They got big families back then. And you got grandma and grandpa there with you. And everybody's with you. And you're there on mission because you love God. You want God to be seen in your city, beyond your city. And here you are on mission. All of a sudden, you realize winter's right around the corner. It's going to start snowing. I'm living in a leather tent. And right by the Kidron Valley, it might start flooding. But not good for grandma and grandpa. All right? This is just not ideal. So you start finding higher ground, you start building another house that might be a little bit more sufficient, you weather the storms of winter, springtime comes around. What's the first thing you think about, springtime? What? Rain. Rain. You got rain, what else? I mean, you got to plant food, right? Plant crops, right? I mean, they didn't have Albertsons back then, FYI, but... Um, so you plant crops, all right? You, you go out and you, and you build whatever you can to plant crops, you, you know, whatever it is you've got to do. Uh, there's people that are, that are raising cattle and goats and sheep and whatever else you can imagine. And this is a completely agrarian culture and society. And here they are, they're thinking, we've, we've just got to survive. So winter moves to spring, moves to harvest time, moves to winter again. One year goes by. Comes around again. It's like second year. Uh, we gotta gotta build sufficient housing. Winter's coming around. Winter's over. It's like I gotta plant crops. Grandma's hungry. All right, you plant crops. But before you know it, it's harvest time. Harvest is already here. By the time that's over, you're already thinking about winter time. Stacking your food. Now you can build bigger things so that you can stack your food so that it'll last longer throughout the winter. You're getting more technologically advanced as time goes. Before you know it. 15, 16 years go by and you've done nothing on the temple. That's what's happened. That's why things happen. Are these sinful things? I mean, is there anything sinful with like feeding your children? No. You know, is there anything wrong with making sure that grandma's got a nice scarf to wear around her neck so she doesn't die in the wintertime? That's really good. You should do that. Take care of grandma's. Take care of little kids. Very important. But here's what's happened. I think what's taken place is one thing leads to the next, that leads to the next, before you know it, 
every single one of their priorities is completely turned upside down. God's not even on the agenda list anymore. God's not even a thought, except for when maybe there's drought, and they're praying, God, bring more rain. But before you know it, 16 years go by, not another stone's been laid upon the temple, it's just a little bit more convenient because we've got to survive. So here's what I think's happening. I think you've got several things, but I think, first of all, you've just got this issue of uh, completely misplaced priorities. Completely misplaced priorities. You've got people not really thinking clearly as to what is essential. Now, these, again, these are not evil things. These are good things that are necessary, that need to be done, but they're done in such a way that don't leave any more room for God. Right, this is the father, this is the dad, who works 40, 50 hours a week. He comes home from work, he's absolutely tired, kicks off his shoes, eats a meatball sandwich, lays on the couch, falls asleep. Never, this happens every single night. And he never has time to hang out with his kids. All right? Never has time to kick back, talk with his wife. Is there anything wrong with eating meatball sandwiches and laying on the couch, kicking up? Nothing! That's great. That's wonderful. But what happens if that becomes the habit? And you don't, you know, you're, by this time, it's like you're making, you're allocating meatball sandwich time and it cuts into like going to church and worshiping and leading your family and your boy's like, I got to go play baseball today, son. You know, Dad, can you come play couch? Nah, another meatball sandwich. You know, I mean, there's a good NASCAR race on today, son. I've got to make time for that. And what happens is before you know it, these, these, these things that are fine end up taking precedent over more weightier things. Does that make sense? This, this is even like the student, let's say. Like, I don't know what to do with my life. I'm trying to figure things out. I don't know where to go. Someone, somewhere along the lines told me that if you're in that place, just go to college. just go to college. I'm sure it'll all come into place. You know what the funny thing is? is Some of you are going to college. Maybe you shouldn't even be going to college. But it's just like, that's default mode. I don't know what else to do. I just got to do it. Now, is there anything wrong with going? There's nothing wrong with going to college. Some of you need to be there. It's important. Being able to read is a good thing. All right? There's nothing wrong with these things. But what happens is when these things take precedent over us stepping back and saying, God, what do you have for my life? And seeking Him and making Him the priority where we set our attention on, focus upon Him. What happens is that we can become completely imbalanced and out of order. I find that some of the major distractions in people's lives are not the bad wicked, evil things. Really, it's not. It's not. I mean, rarely do I have people coming up to me like, you know, I'm having a hard time figuring out what to do with my life. Black tar heroin. I'm thinking about doing that. Is that cool? Nobody does that. Like, nobody thinks like that. Because, like, that's, that's culturally bad. But it's like, college, good thing. Maybe I'll have, get a girlfriend. Good thing. Maybe I'll... And fill in the blank. Good things. But what happens are these good things can very quickly become imbalanced where they're not the proper priorities that God's trying to set for our lives. And we just do things by default without ever stopping to ask, stay current with God, saying, God, where do you want me to be now? What do you want me to do today? How do you want me to live my life? What's your best for me? Not seeking him. That's what happens. I think that's what was happening here. Here's a couple other things I think that might also play into this. I think one of them is uh, kind of a, a, a greediness or selfishness that led to this. You know, before you know it, you just become very self-centered. I, I think, I think, convenience, which what starts here, can very quickly lead to sort of this just kind of selfishness. Have you noticed? How many things, like in our culture, we, we like desperately need, right? But if you step back for a moment and you think, wait a minute, 
I don't really need that. I mean, we have a, we have a Volkswagen Passat. It's several years old. But it, it has seat warmers. I love seat warmers. They, I think they're one of the best inventions ever made. They're incredible. Like, on a cold day, I'll just crank that thing up to five and just sit on it. And it's just like, it's heaven. It's unbelievable. It is a gift from Jesus. I mean, it's amazing. Love these things. You know, we think, like, i got to have seat warmers. I'll give you another thing, just kind of speaking from, like, personal experience. Greatest invention next to seat warmers is DVR. Right? I mean, is that true? I mean, how many of you could actually go back after having tasted the goodness of DVR, go back to just like regular TV? Right? I mean, like, is there anything wrong with DVR? Anything wrong with... No, these are fine things. But what happens is we begin to think it's like, life is just not life without a DVR. Right? Like, I cannot survive without a moonroof in my car. All right? I mean, I have to have like a 60-disc changer in the back. I have to have like satellite radio. It's essential. I mean, I've had the privilege of being able to go around the world and see lots of different countries. It's amazing to me how many different cultures survive on really not much. If they have a television, it's one. It's not that nice. If they have a car, it's a clunker. Certainly wouldn't pass smog. All right? Most people around the world live with far less than what we have, but we, we live in a society that says it has to be this. It has to look like this it ha- because we've grown accustomed. Our standard of living is way up here. Okay? Is someone whistling a song? Okay. That is a great reminder to say, make sure your cell phone's turned off. All right. Where was I at? Next thing I, I also noticed is this, is um, criticism. I think here's what happens. Um, when they begin the work, at the end of chapter 3, we're told that um, they laid the foundation stones of the temple. And while people were shouting for joy, they were really excited. I mean, this is sort of a new group of people. They were excited. They were part of this work. They'd never been a part of anything like this before. They were very happy to be a part of this fresh new work of God, building the temple of God. But there was also this other group of people uh, that were old. They were older people, and they had remembered what the original temple looked like. And in their mind, they're thinking, the work that's being done right now doesn't look that great. I mean, they're, they're, in their mind, they're thinking, this looks nothing like Solomon's temple. You can imagine. Can you imagine being in the workplace? Job, everybody's got a trawl in their hand, they're working, other people got hammers, they're kind of pounding things, and they're working hard, and you got some of the older people that are like, this looks pretty bad. I mean, you guys aren't that great of workers, and it's not level, and it's like leaning, and you know, the, the foundation stones, you know, they, they, they look nothing, they're not carved anything like the way Solomon's look like, and you know, it, it, I mean, you got, you got kids that are like, 14 years old, swinging a hammer, and then you got guys that are like 85 years old. I mean, this is not your typical, you know, graduated from college work crew. This is more just like graduated from high school and go to work full time. That's what was happening here. These were just a bunch of standard people who had a heart to serve God, swung a hammer, moved the trowel, and were doing their very best. But in the midst of all that, people were criticizing it. This works bad. It doesn't look nice. It will never look anything like Solomon's. We might as well just stop. So I think what happens is that criticism tends to lead to sort of this great discouragement. Where in the midst of this discouragement, they just kind of find themselves really bummed. I'm talking about the type of, you know, you just feel like, why do I keep going? Why do I keep moving on? I think discouragement can, can come from just radical criticism. Right? This, this is the boss that's a micromanager. Right? You, you love working with that boss. Right? always looking over your shoulder, everything you do, he's constantly critiquing it, telling you how to do it better, telling you that's not the way I do it, constantly to the point where you just, you feel like you just want to quit. It's called flight, right? Flight. You pull back. You move away. So here's here's, here's what's happening here. I, I think these people are feeling very discouraged 
because the wind's being taken out of their sail. They find themselves working very hard, but everything they do is being nothing but criticized. And it gets to the point where that just gets nauseating, where you just don't even want to keep moving forward. So the natural response to that can be to just be like, throw down your hammer, throw down your trowel, take off your working belt and just say, I quit. I'm done. Finished. I'll go build my own house. I think that's what was happening here. I think that's what was happening. I think they just realized, this is tough, man. This is hard to keep going on. And they just stopped. They just stopped. One year, turned into two, turned into 16. The work just had completely stopped. It finished. You know, the bottom line is, is that all this stuff can very quickly lead to, as I mentioned, discouragement. But this is not new. This is not new to the people of Israel. I mean, think about this. When they came out of Egypt, when they came out of Egypt, which God's going to actually remind them of, they were discouraged. Because here they're at the Red Sea. And behind them is their enemies. On either side are mountains. And there's literally no way for them in the natural to progress or move forward. And they were discouraged. Or when they finally get out of the Red Sea. I mean, here they walk on dry ground through the Red Sea. A few days later, they're thirsty. All their water runs out and they begin to get discouraged again. God, we don't have any water. God says, I'll give you water from a rock. A few days later, there's no food. What happens? They get really discouraged. God says, you guys want food? I'll give you food. Creates manna. Right? God says, you guys want to go in the land, the promised land? They're like, yes, we want to go to the promised land. God says, send out scouts. Scouts come back. They're like, promised land looks great. Everything's wonderful. The only problem is there's giants there. We look like grasshoppers. We'll be stepped on. And they get discouraged. Can you understand this is a theme? This is a theme that doesn't just simply take place in the Bible. It leaps off of the pages of the Bible and into our lives. You know what I'm talking about? This type of discouragement where it's just like, should I, do I, want to continue, keep moving forward? So what we looked at last week. It's sometimes in these phases of discouragement. Right? You start hearing things spoken to you like in a third person. Right? You shouldn't go on. You should just end it. Alright? Just run away from it all. Just go. Just freak out and show your anger to everybody. When you start hearing those like third person voices, pretty good chance it's demonic. Alright? It's part of that same adversity for one purpose. To get you to stop doing what God wants you to be doing. That's it. I think that's what was happening to these guys. All of these things taking place. Pursuing good things, building their houses, raising crops, taking care of the little mouths to feed and their older mouths' safety. They were discouraged because the work was constantly being criticized. They were frustrated because they really didn't know what to do in the midst of all this. They didn't know where to go ultimately just led to this complete halt of the work. Alright. For us as a church, it's been kind of funny. Um, I've shared this with you guys before in the past. For me personally, this is an area where the enemy always loves to try to attack me personally. It's an area of just being discouraged. It's very easy for me. I, I, I do fine with things that I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm aware, I'm, I know how to deal with. You, there's, there's not that much that I am afraid of trying to challenge myself to figure out. Okay? But for the most part, there are times in my life, in ministry, where I can find myself confronted with things where I just I don't have answers to this stuff. Alright? I'll give you an example. My wife and I, we moved up here 15 years ago. We started a Bible study. All we knew, all we knew, like all that was written on our job description from God was... Move to slow, open up your house, feed anybody who's hungry that wants to come in there, and teach a Bible study. It's all I had on my job description from God, alright? And then what, what happens was within a few months, this thing grows. I mean, we, we didn't expect it to grow. I mean, 30, 40, 50 people in our little apartment had grown. 
So we're kind of like, what do we do now? I have no idea. We can't keep feeding all these people. We're literally going broke. My wife's freaking out because she's being stressed to have to make dinner. All these people, just, I mean, it was, it was nice, but at the same time, we're these challenges. Like, there's no book to be read. Like, what's step two? Like, where do you go now? What happens when you don't have any more money to feed people and, and you've got a full house of people? I honestly felt one day, just like, Lord said, go take a walk. I went for a walk. I walked by a Seventh-day Adventist church. I walked into the Seventh-day Adventist church just to check it out. I thought, you know what, I wonder if these guys have, have anything available. Maybe we can, you know, move there. Maybe we can move, you know, what's happening at our house over there. So I walk in there, I talk to the pastor there. So I'm chatting with the guy, I'm just like, hey, listen, just out of curiosity, we've got a Bible study in our house, it's way too big for our house. We're wondering if you have any space available right here that maybe we can rent out from you guys, or, you know, we don't have any money, so maybe it can be really cheap. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he's just like, well, you know, it's kind of funny you should come in here right now, because... For the past five years, we've had a church that was meeting in here on Sundays and throughout the week, and I just got a letter from the guy a couple days ago, just read it today, that said they're no longer going to be using it by the end of the week. He said, so you're in luck. I literally walked out of there and just scratching my head thinking, okay, I guess God wants us to go to a Seventh-day Adventist church. All right, so we, so we went in there. We didn't have any money. We didn't have anything. We was just like, step two, go to Seventh-day Adventist church, have a Bible study, keep doing what we're doing, start Sunday morning messages, Bible studies, teachings and all that, kind of officially planting the church. Well, that was great. Everything went well. We kind of grew. Uh, finally, I mean, I remember our first service, it was, it was like almost like the center of this whole entire thing. We had like 15 people in there. And I remember just feeling like, oh my gosh, this place is ginormous. And we got 15 people in here. And it was only fit, fit like, I don't know, 200, 250 people or so, something like that. 15 people. felt overwhelming to me, at least. I was new. I had no idea what I was doing. I was 23 years old. Never been to Bible college. I barely graduated from public school. Barely was literate. And uh, so what had happened was, was I, I had no idea what I was doing. I just knew that God says, go to 7 a.m. church, teach Bible studies, and keep going from there. So we grew. Our, our church service grew. I mean, to the point where we are packed. What do we do now? What do we do? We can't keep stuffing people in here. People are sitting on laps. That's a little bit awkward, right? We're a little bit like we value our space cushion type of culture. And, you know, that, that just doesn't work too well. And so what do we do? I don't know. There's like no book on this stuff. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I've never last pastored a church before. There was no Internet even around back then to like Google stuff. I mean, it wasn't even around. It just felt like, you know, the Lord's saying, do two services. Two services. How? I mean, we're barely surviving, like having people function, work, run the sound with one service. Two services, doubling everything, doubling people who are serving in children's ministry, doubling people helping out, doubling worship teams. How are we going to do this? Just, just do it. I don't know. How? Just do it. So what I'm trying to say is that all of these seasons were seasons that could have radically just discouraged me. I, just, I, don't, I don't have the answers. All right, here we are today. San Luis. We grow this place, fill it out. You know, we, we just, honestly, our goal from the beginning is not church growth, it's just faithfulness. We just want to be faithful to God's Word. That's it. If we grow, we grow. If we don't, I really don't care. We're, like I've said this before, we're not here to make you comfortable at church on Sunday morning. That's why we don't have any coffee, I mean, honestly, we are, we are like, we love you. Well, hopefully you got a good experience. Hopefully people meet Jesus. Hopefully people are nice to you and aren't rude and you get to find a parking spot. But really, honestly, I, 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 don't, I don't really care. I just want to be faithful to God's Word. And I just want to hang out with other people that want to be faithful to God. And it's kind of what we've done. So we've, you know, back in October, God, God gives us a building, a more permanent building. For the past 15 years, we've been mobile. All right? We set up everything, break everything down every single Sunday here. Every single Sunday. This, you guys are gone, everything turns back into a basketball gym. All right? It's like extreme makeover, reverse edition is what it is. All right? It's all. Everything just goes back to being a school gymnasium. And God gives us this building. You know, now we're in this place, it's just like, we've got to put floors in it, we've got we to paint things. That costs money. 
you know, maybe, and if we got the possibility of an extension into another 6,000 square feet, means we need to get building permits. You know, I'm thinking, can't we just go in there with hammers and drywall and throw things up? It's like, no, you can't. It's against the law, right? Like, shucks, I thought we could just do that, you know? And, you know, and then you come to find out this stuff costs a lot of money. It's a lot of money. We're talking maybe, maybe 100000 maybe more. I don't know. I mean, what I'm trying to say is that this is all new to me. I don't know what I'm doing, all right? I, I might give you the illusion that I know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing, all right? I'm winging it most of the time in my life. And if I've created that illusion, would you please forgive me? All right? What I'm trying to say is that life, period, creates opportunities for difficulty and hardship and oppression and opposition and criticism. I didn't even touch on criticism. All right, that's not even a touch on emails I get from people. All right, I'm not even going to go there today. All right, I'll spare you that. But my point is this. I can completely relate with the children of Israel getting going on this thing, hitting radical roadblocks, retreating to what's most convenient and what's comfortable, which is just building a house, making sure family's taken care of. Loving their kids. Making sure grandma's fine. I can totally relate to that. But what I don't want as a church, personally, is I don't want to somehow, in the effort to dodge opposition, wind up worshiping a God called comfort. All right? That's what I think happened in the day of the children of Israel. They started out passionate, excited, worshiping God, on mission together, building this great work. Opposition comes, difficulty, criticism, and even good things. And everything stops for 15 years because it's hard. And they end up playing around with the God of comfort. That's where we're headed today. All right? So what I want to do right now is I want to jump into the uh, book of Haggai. Before we jump into that, two things real quick I want to, I want to just mention. Um, you'll find there's a couple of reoccurring phrases and concepts, the first of which is you'll see the, the, the phrase Lord of hosts appear a lot. The word hosts in the Old Testament uh, was sort of a reference to armies. I like that picture. It's like, uh, here these people are, children of Israel. I mean... You know, these guys were not an army, all right? Imagine, like, 13-year-old boys uh, to 82-year-old grandpas, and they're fighting with, like, broomsticks, all right? All right? You got warriors around them, people that are, like, part of tribal nations coming in, and it's like you're going out, you know, fighting people with, like, throwing stars and nunchucks and bow staffs, and you got, like, a nice big broomstick. You're like, I'll kill you. You got a broomstick. You're kidding me, right? It's like you can understand, and you're 82 years old. What are you going to do? Gum me to death? I mean, who do you think? You know, you can imagine how quickly and easily it would be to retreat back into this comfort zone because you feel very vulnerable, right? You feel really weak. You don't have an army. You got just a bunch of random standard people. And oftentimes throughout the passage, God's going to say, I am the God of armies. God's saying, look, you guys don't have an army, I'll be the general of your army, and I'll provide all the troops and all the strength and all the help you need. The second thing that you'll see oftentimes, um, not only in Ezra, but also in Haggai, is this, uh, this reoccurrence of mention of some of these names. Uh, you'll see the guy at Zerubbabel, and we're told that he's the governor. Um, uh, he's not the king, but he's basically a governing official. He's a leading official. You'll see uh, Jeshua, he's the priest, the high priest. And then you'll see Haggai and Zechariah, these guys are prophets. So what you're going to see is sort of this reoccurring uh, theme of prophet, priest, and king working together for the purpose of building the temple. All right, I think this is significant because I think in the same way, in the modern day terms of the body of Christ, God uses certain types of giftings that are prophetic, that are kingly, 
and that are priestly to advance the kingdom, to build his church, to do great things. An example of that, uh, sort of a prophetic gift, I think, is more someone who is able to communicate, to speak, they're articulate, they're able to put words to God's uh, thoughts, and they speak forth boldly what God has to say. Oftentimes, you'll find with prophets, they're not really the type of guy you're going to go hang out with, drink a cup of coffee, and really feel like you can snuggle up next to them. They're the side hug guy. They're not front double hug. They're side hug. All right? They're the guy that you go up and you're like, listen, I'm struggling with sin right now. He'll shout at you and tell you to repent. All right? He'll yell at you. Repent! All right? that's, that's a prophet. Um, a priest typically was the representative of the people to God and representative of God to the people. He was sort of the intermediator, intermediator between the two, and he was the guy that, that would come, he'd pre, uh, present the sacrifices. He was a guy that would try to understand where you're coming from. So you're struggling with sin, you go to the priest, you're like, I'm struggling with sin, what should I do? He'll put his arm around you, he'll lay hands on you, he'll pray for you, say, listen, here's what you've got to do. Let's just talk this through, let me help you, let me massage your back, let me just be a friend of yours. We're going to get through this together, okay? We're in this thing together. That's a priest a lot of times. Then you got kings. All right, kings are more um, into organization. These are, these are people, these are giftings where people are into sort of organizing things. They're into sort of uh, a proper workflow. These are people that really like flow charts. All right? If that's you, it's probably because you have some sort of a kingly gifting. If you like to just speak out and you tend to offend people, it's probably you got some sort of prophetic gifting. If you like to sit down and snuggle with people and help them and encourage them and drink, you know, decaf and tea, and, and, and it's probably because you got a priestly gifting, all right? In some way. But see here, God uses prophet, priest, and king for the purpose of building the temple. Uh, curiously enough, Jesus is all three. He is a prophet. He is in the order of prophets like Moses. He's a king after the office of Melchizedek, meaning he is a, he's a, he's a, he's a godly king. He is the king of uh, prince of peace. He brings order. Uh, he's a god of shalom, brings peace. But he's also uh, a priest. Hebrews tells us that he's a great high priest. He understands what we're going through. So in other words, if you're hurting today, you're trying to figure out, does anybody know what I'm going through? Does anybody know how I'm hurting today? The answer is yes. Jesus. Jesus does. Go to Jesus. He knows how to help you. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus himself is building the church, which is the temple of the living God. So interestingly enough, in Haggai, as well as Ezra, this sort of picture of prophet, priest, and king working together, I think is sort of a prophetic picture of what will come through Jesus himself. Alright, with that being said, I want to read now in the book of uh, Haggai. So if you guys don't know where Haggai is, today's one of those special days. It's okay for you to open up to the very first page in your Bible called the Table of Contents. That's not inspired by God, but it will help you find the book. Locate the book of Haggai. The book of Haggai. Go ahead and turn there real quick. If you already know where it's at, good for you. Haggai. We're going to read through the whole prophecy of Haggai. It's only two chapters. We'll work through it quickly. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. Haggai is going to basically give four prophecies. Four prophecies. He's only on the scene for approximately four months. We don't know anything about Haggai before the book of Ezra. There's nothing else that's ever written about Haggai, ever. There's only one New Testament quotation to Haggai. Outside of that, we don't know anything else about this guy. He starts his ministry probably in his 80s. He's an old guy. All right? He comes on the scene. He's got a job for four months, and then he's done. God lays him off of the payroll. And that's it. That's all we know about this guy. He's got a timely, specific task to come on the scene, to come to the people of Israel, to speak forth encouragement for the purpose of getting them out of the slump of distraction, discouragement, buckling under the weight, 
to get them back to doing what God's called them to do. Here's what it says, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, the king, kingly figure, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, priestly figure, prophet, priest, and king. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, there's that phrase, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of God. It's a convenient statement, right? Things are hard, it's tough, you've got to plant crops, winter's coming again, you've got miles to feed. Maybe right now is not the time to build the house of God. So Haggai's saying, these people are going around saying this. Then he goes on, verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came by hand of Haggai the prophet, verse 4, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, this is the Lord of hosts. Consider your ways. You have sown much, and you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is ever warm. And he who earns wages does so, but to put them into a bag with holes. I realize this ancient text probably has absolutely nothing to do with our modern culture that never struggles with working really hard, never having enough to spend, right? Hello? Okay, the point I'm making is that this is very relevant. Right? I mean, it's almost like he's writing this to us today. Like, here we are, a group of people, like, how many times are people finding themselves in radical debt? It's like we work harder, we make more money, but the moment we get that more money, it's like it's already gone. It's like, what happens to it? Well, here's what's taking place in this day, is that these people are working really hard, they're laboring very hard, but as much as they work and as much as they strive, everything they get is very little or very insignificant. It's barely enough to take care of their very essential needs. And God's saying, doesn't that strike you odd? I mean, it's been going on for years now. You guys are constantly sowing things. You know, not sowing, but like actually sowing rows of crops. And you guys are constantly doing this. And I mean, doesn't it strike you odd that it never rains? And when it does rain, it just rains very shortly. All right? Barely enough to get your crops going. Does it strike you as odd? It's like God's saying, you guys are constantly earning money and putting it in the bags. And the bags have, you know, the, you know that old phrase, you know, you're putting money and you're burning a hole in your pocket. It's like, that God's saying, does it strike you as odd that it's always burning a hole in your pocket? You never have enough. God's like, is, is it possible? Is it possible that the reason because of this is because your priorities are all out of whack? I mean, is it possible that that's the issue? What God's trying to say is that you guys have begun to focus so much of your effort, so much, so much of your attention, again, not on evil things. He says you guys have focused your attention on building paneled houses. I think that's really significant, right? Um, standard track homes would have been made out of rock, Right? But if you're increasing your standard of living, right, and you're like, hmm, we're doing pretty good. Grandma's looking pretty fly. My kids are doing well, and they got little places to play. You know, how about we go out and build houses out of wood? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, that, that's like that's building a very nice house. And God's saying, listen, you guys have spent way too much time focusing upon yourselves, and you've completely forsaken my temple. Is God anti-having nice things? Is God anti-money? Some are led to this concept, which I think is false, that yes, God, is, God just wants you poor. No, God. And some lead to the other extreme, God wants you rich. But the point that I think has to be taken into consideration is God wants us to live for Him. Not money, not things whether evil or good. He wants us to live for Him. And that's what's happening here. Is these people are focused upon themselves and have completely forsaken God. So he goes on to say about verse 7, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. This God's basically saying, consider your life. Take a look at what's happening in your life and deal with it. He says, go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house, that I might take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified. 
says the Lord. So God's point in all of this, in them building the temple, is His glory. Don't miss this. This is God's goal for your life. Okay? God's goal for your life is that God will be glorified in you. You say, well, I want pleasure. I mean, I want to live for myself. I want to be happy. You know, interestingly enough, God also calls us to joy, to happiness. Me finding joy and happiness is not necessarily in direct opposition to making God glorified. In fact, as has been said before, God is most glorified in us when we are satisfied in Him. That's simply the way that it works. When we find satisfaction in God for God's sake. In other words, not using God so I pray so I can get a better job or pray so I can get a spouse or pray so I can have kids or pray so that I can have whatever it is that I want on my list, sometimes, believe it or not, God will withhold those things from you, not because He hates you, but actually because He loves you. He knows that should He give you the things that you're asking of Him, really using Him for, that you will find ultimate joy in those things. And God's saying, I'm going to withhold that because I want you to find joy in Me. God doesn't want to be used by you to get things. God wants to be the end for which we're satisfied. Okay? So he's saying, guys, I, I want you to build this temple so that I'd be glorified. I want you to be working hard for me so that your joy and, and my glory will work together. You'll be happy. You'll be satisfied. I'll be glorified. Sinners that come from other parts of the world come into Jerusalem. They'll recognize there's just this thing that's going on here that's unique. It's like these people are happy. They might not have a lot, but they're happy. Why? Because our God's great. Okay? That's why I think God's going with this whole thing. Verse 11, or verse 10, he says, Therefore the heavens, you have withheld the dew and the earth, you have withheld its produce. And I have called for drought on the land and the hills and the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what brings forth on man and beast and all their labors. Then he kind of continues into sort of an encouragement. Verse 12, he says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetel, Joshua, the son of Josadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And all the people, they feared God. So somehow this message was so powerful, it stirred their hearts to actually change. It's exactly what I hope happens to some of us. That when we hear God's Word, we actually do something about it. We change. We hear God's Word and we're moved. Not just emotionally in the moment, but rather something happens where we make a resolve by God's power to say, I'm just going to change. God, I'm going to do what you want me to do. You know that that's what repentance is? Repentance is literally making a 180 degree turn from a lifestyle that you used to live and saying, I will leave this behind and I will follow after what is better. Do you understand the simple call of the Gospel? Is God is not saying, follow me and I'll make your life miserable. Do you understand that at the heart of the Gospel, God says, I, I am better than paneled houses. I am better than family. I am better than a job, than money, than gadgets, than things, than babies. I am better than all of these things. I am better than the sex. I am better than the drugs. I am better than any other types of covetousness that you might have or the feelings of joy that you get in just thinking about things that you wish you had. God's saying, I am better. The problem is that we just don't always see that. We're not convinced of that. And so that's why we continue to pursue secondary things that oftentimes lead to our own hurt and or defilement. The defilement I'm talking about is when you wake up some days or you go to sleep some days and you just feel filthy. Do you know 
that when you serve God and you find the life in Him that He gives, you never feel defiled? When you live the life that God calls us to do, you never feel full of regrets? I have never given my money away or given my energy away to other people joyfully in God and have sat down later at the end of the day and just thought, I should have never been generous. Like ever. I mean, even if, I mean, sometimes if it gets used and abused, you know, then you think about it. That's another issue. But you always feel good. And God's saying, listen, I want to be the reward. I want to be your treasure. Find that life in me. And God's saying, you guys have had your priorities all messed up. You've thought it was to be found in paneled houses and stuff, and you've, you've missed it. God's saying, just come back. Come back to me. Come back to doing what I've called you to do. Comes Zerubbabel and all the people in fear of God. Verse 13, And Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked in the house of the Lord, the host of their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month of the second year of King Darius. So here's what's happened. The prophet speaks. The word goes out. They respond properly. They get back to doing what God's called them to do. Throughout the rest of the... the I'll pick it up about verse 1 in chapter 2. It says, In the seventh month, the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by hand of Haggai the prophet. So again he speaks. So speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the remnant of all the people, and say, who is left among you? Who saw the house in its former glory? Uh, and how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedach, the priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when I came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Do not be afraid. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea, the dry land. I will shake the nations and the treasures of the nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former glory, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace. Shalom, says the Lord of hosts. So God's prophecy through Haggai is keep working hard, guys. Don't get tired. Don't give in. Don't give up. Don't give in to the opposition. Don't let your knees buckle. Don't let your voices grow faint. Don't let your hearts become weak. Don't let your shoulders be burdened. Keep going. Because the tendency is to often turn and retreat and run. God said, I'm with you. I'm with you. I will be your strength. We'll get through this together. I will be your God over you, helping you, moving you forward. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to go back to Ezra chapter 5. I'm going to pick it up at verse 2. And I want to finish with this little section in Ezra. And we'll wrap it up right here. Love this because in Ezra chapter 5, again, after 15, 16 years of just non-work, God raises up this prophet, speaks, God stirs in their hearts, they begin to believe and trust that God's actually working and God's actually moving and renewal happens. Renewal, the sense where God just sort of brings sort of this the springtime rain of renewal, watering their lives, giving them energy, renewing their hope, renewing their strength, causing them to keep moving forward. Next week as we pick up in chapter 5, we're going to see these guys are going to continue to work, but the opposition gets even gnarlier. I mean, just crazy opposition. But because God has stirred in their hearts, they're like, listen, you can put a knife to my throat, but we're going to keep building this temple. Because God told us to do it. I just kind of love this with these guys. Verse 2 says this, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, Joshua, the son of Josedek, arose 
And they began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. I love this. It's just God saying, listen, the work's going to continue. I will be your strength. We'll keep moving forward. I want to finish with one last verse. If you guys wouldn't mind turning in your Bible to Matthew chapter 6. Because I think Jesus kind of picks up on something very similar to this. Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to wrap it up. And we're going to finish. And we're going to do some worship to just give our praise to God. But what I want to finish with is this little statement here that Jesus says. Because here's what's happening. Jesus is talking to a group of people that live in Roman culture. All right? It's uh, Romanized. And what's happened is these people feel oppressed. A lot of them have kind of begun to wonder, you know, is God still here? Is He still with us? Is God going to show up and help us? Is there going to ever be a Messiah that's going to come? Jesus comes and He begins to speak this message. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what He says. The things that He speaks here are so remarkably similar to the words of the prophet Haggai. To me, it's almost like Jesus is just the New Testament version of Haggai who's saying, Listen, here's the way you got to do this. Life's tough. It's difficult. There's all sorts of pressures around you. There's all sorts of things that will cause us to retreat, to pull back, to fall away, to just move into the fray where we are sort of kind of comfortable. And he says, here's how you got to live. Jesus says this. Chapter uh, 7, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, about your body, what you will put on, your clothing. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither snow, sow nor they reap, nor do they gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about your clothing? Why are you always worrying about what type of pants you're going to buy? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory is not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you have little faith. Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles, they seek after these things. But your heavenly Father knows that you have need of them. But seek first the kingdom of God, His righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow, some translations say, have enough problems of its own. Love this. I think Jesus had a smile on His face when He's saying that. He's like, listen, don't worry about tomorrow. There's enough trouble for today. Just deal with today. But in the moment, don't live in such a way where you are going to keep yourself in this place of discouragement, frustration. Fix your eyes upon your Father. Have you noticed? Have you noticed that that's kind of a tough thing to do sometimes? Right? It's not easy. The reason for that is because we're sons of Adam. We have at the very core of our being a sinful nature that wants to take matters into our own hands. The problem is, is we just want to be central in everything. We want to have power. We want to be in control. We want to be the captain of our own ship. We want to be the one that provides the wind for the sails. We want to do it all. And Jesus' words to these people were, listen, trust your Father. Haggai's words to the people were, Trust the Lord of hosts. He's with you. Repent. Turn from your sin. The sinful things you cling on to, whether they're evil, bad things, or they're just simply good things that are not in a proper priority. Cling, trust, look to, love the Father. That's where the renewal comes from. Rebuilding shortly follows. Let's pray. We're going to respond by singing to the Lord. We're going to respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. If you're one of our guests here, please don't feel any obligation to give. This is a way for us who call this their home church to give joyfully to God. If you're here and you need prayer for anything that's going on in your life, we'll have some people available off to the side to pray with you. And uh, I'm going to pray right now.
We'll sing a few songs of worship. This is what really this whole service is about, is worship. We worship God by hearing the Word, and we worship God by responding to sing, to love, to pray, to confess sin, to ask God to forgive us. I'm going to pray. We'll sing. We'll dismiss you guys in a few. Jesus, thank You for Your love. Thank You for the cross, for dying for us, for rising again from the dead for us, proving victory over the very things that constantly haunt us. You're a great high priest. You're tempted in every way, just like us, yet victorious. All of that, Lord, summarizes Your greatness. That we can look to You, we can trust You, and You will never leave us nor forsake us, but You'll be our God. That some of us right now, we just need to repent. That's how we need to respond. We need to confess our sin. That's the proper response from our hearts. Some of us, proper response is just confessing the fact that we've been in utter discouragement because rather than looking to you, we've been focused upon things. Some of us need to let go of stuff that we have found as primary focus of joy. We need to confess that and say that we're sorry that we have allowed ourselves to fall in love with things over the Creator God who holds atoms together. Thank You, Lord that you're here in this place. We worship, love you, give you this time.